0: Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read that Psalm I read earlier today, 127, and then we'll pray and I'll share a few thoughts. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil, isn't that a great line, the bread of anxious toil? For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands or in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his query with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Father, I pray that the things I have to share tonight will glorify you. May the meditations of my heart uh, be acceptable to you. In Christ's name, amen. So as you know, I I, uh, originally uh, delivered this talk at a conference. And the title I was given for the talk was Children as Artillery. So my mind just kind of took off from there. I was like, this is a fun title. So the first thought that came to mind was the human cannonball. Remember the human cannonball? You know, you go to the circus, right? There'd be some guy, put on a helmet, you know, and get in a fake cannon with a big spring. And then they'd launch him across all three rings of the circus or across the tent, you know, and then he'd land in a net. That's the first thought that came to mind. I think a lot of kids would be into that, like, yeah. I want to be a human cannonball <laughs> i want that another th- another one another uh thought that came to mind or a uh, thing that came to mind was uh super dave osborne You remember super dave super dave osborne was like a ne'er-do-well daredevil inspired by evil knievel and he dressed just like evil knievel but he was a comedian and uh, every episode of his television show he'd do a different stunt and die at the end and then miraculously be back next week perfect health <laughs> but i thought about him And then I thought about uh, my time at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, There was a a movement back in the 90s to expunge all militaristic language from the hymnal. They wanted to get, you remember that, right? They wanted to get Onward Christian Soldiers out of the hymnal. You know, Battle Hymn of the Republic, get that out of there. You know, wanted to get all that stuff out of the hymnal because, after all, we're into peace. We're peacemakers, right? It's not as though we're actually in some kind of conflict with an enemy well we are (laughs) but anyways they didn't like that so long before they were trying to neuter God they were trying to get uh, militaristic uh, language out of hymnals they hadn't they didn't actually get to the Bible but I think that they would have been up for that too if they if they'd had uh, the wherewithal in those days anyway but above all as I think about this theme I think about Immanuel Kant now, I know you're thinking, oh no, here we go. <laughs> I, I didn't expect a lecture in deontological ethics and you know modern philosophy here tonight. Well, don't worry, this is just a brief moment where I want to talk a little bit about him because it is relevant. Um, you know, one of the things about ivory tower types is you know they're easy to dismiss, they're easy to make fun of. I mean, they even made fun of them uh, in antiquity. Um, there's actually a uh, a work of literature called the clouds making fun of Socrates because his head was always in the clouds <laughs> they, they so even in those days you know they made fun of of eggheads but anyway um, the, the problem is is they actually do change the world but they're long dead by the time it happens so Karl Marx was a philosopher he was not a politician he was not a political activist he was not the Saul Alinsky of his day He was just a guy writing books, really thick, poorly written books, (laughs) you know, Das Kapital, you know, the Communist Manifesto, stuff like that. And Karl Marx has made a difference in your life. Whether you like it or not, he has made a difference in your life, everything from graduated taxation to the nuttiness we see in Portland. He's made a difference in your life. And before Karl Marx, there was Immanuel Kant. Now, Immanuel Kant, um, he's kind of, uh, an influence on a lot of modern philosophy, but he's known for something uh, that is uh, known as the categorical imperative. Anybody ever hear of the categorical imperative? One, two. So anyway, I knew that would be the response. <laughs> but the categorical categorical imperative has also made a difference in your life, and you don't even know it. A lot of the wokeism, uh, kind of beneath the surface, is a kind of outworking of the categorical imperative. But anyway. Um, one of the things that uh, he did is he as i noted formulated it in different ways and w- and probably the best known is this this formulation and it's pretty good it's pretty good insofar as we're talking about something that doesn't make any reference to god uh, it says uh, treat humanity in every case as an end in themselves never as a means only using your kids as artillery seems to violate this principle I mean, they're the means, right? You're going to launch them, <laughs> You're going to shoot them, right? Um, but I, I think that um, there's something else that we can say about means and ends that con- implies. Um, notice that he doesn't say that they should never be means, but he says only. In other words, he qualifies it with the word only so he was smart enough to know that we're all both ends and means now what does it mean when i talk about means and ends so an end would be let's say uh i give a gift to a person and the purpose is just simply to enrich that person in other words the well-being of that person is the end of the of the of the thing that i'm up to in other words the action uh, is something directed toward the well-being of a person they are the end now let's say I give you a job you know that can be a good thing but believe me if I'm a boss and I hire you you are not the end of the story (laughs) there's something else that I intend for you to do you are the means to making a profit for the business means and ends okay so those that's the way to think about so you know Kant is saying that we shouldn't just think about people as means to 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 our ends and that's great that's very very good but we've taken it to such an extreme that we can't think about uh, means in any other way or we have a tendency to think of means of using people as a means toward an end is somehow wrong I'm gonna play that out a little bit here so one of the things that Kant was not known for is happiness. In fact, uh, he, had, he was kind of suspicious of the, of the subject of happiness. He thought you should just do something because it's the right thing to do. So deontological ethics is uh, referring to do, you know, at the ethics of duty, doing it because it's the right thing to do, not because you're going to get something out of it or because it's going to make you happy. Um, it went, my, my wife and I had this conversation many times when the kids were small. Mar- Marla wanted the kids to do it just because it was right. And I'd say, well, you know what? You might, you might want to still give them a lollipop. <laughs> you know, in other words, you might want to bribe them for a little while <laughs> until they kind of catch the, the vision of the goodness of the thing. Anyway, uh, when it comes to this, uh, the problem, though, with Kant's approach when it comes to children is that one of the best ways to make a child happy is to give them something meaningful to do. One of the problems we face in our society today is we just want our children to be happy. That's the purpose. And you know, if you ask somebody, say on Oprah Winfrey or daytime television, you know, what do you want for your children? I want him or her or it, whatever, to be happy. And then, if you were to follow that, you know, statement up with another question to find happiness, which they never seem to do. It's like we—they all assume that we know what that means. Uh, it'd be, I think, enlightening because I—I I, I suspect that. The people would respond with kind of Oprah Winfrey, kind of new agey fluff. You know, it's uh, happiness. Well, well, you know what I mean. It's that 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 ooey gooey feeling. <laughs> it's that warmth, you know, in your heart. You know, you just you know of, of being loved. You know, it's stuff like that. You know, that's that's as far as it goes. But I think uh, just about everybody likes to be useful. Being useful makes you happy. If you were told, you know what? you're happy but you're useless would that make you happy (laughs) you know no we all want to be useful so in other words means is part of the story we need worthwhile things to do to genuinely be happy so human beings are both ends and means and I think uh, this is something that uh, we've lost sight of in our society but anyway getting to the subject uh, using children as artillery Actually, will make them happy. That's the weird thought, you know. I'm going to present to you today. Launching your son from a cannon would also make him happy. But I'm not talking about this literally, you know. Particularly if he's Bubba, you know. Bubba would want to be launched from a cannon, I suspect. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> but so, so you kind of get the drift. I knew I wanted to be launched from a cannon when I was a kid. I also liked the idea of being in a wheelchair because you could be at the center of everybody's attention. Like when a kid came to school, you know, had a broken leg or something like that. I thought that was so cool. I wanted to break my leg so that everybody would pay attention to me and sign my cast, you know, that kind of stuff. When you're small, you're dumb, you know. It's just kind of the way it is. But anyway, maybe, maybe if you're maybe you're small and not dumb, but I was small and dumb. So um, I want to think a little bit uh, about this within the framework here of this uh, this this text, uh, and we're told that children are a heritage from the Lord so far so good I think everybody would say that's great Uh, and the fruit of the womb a reward that's also great Uh, but then they're called arrows arrows what's with that Um, it's not typically the first thing that comes to mind when you go to the delivery room and you see all the babies you know lying in their little cribs there you know in front of the big window I know we don't do that anymore. Everybody's having their babies at home. But back in the day, you go and you'd see all these little people. And, you know, you don't think, arrows. Look at that arrow. Look at that arrow. You don't think about that. Um, but here we are. Now, arrows are for shooting. And they have no choice in the matter. It's not like an arrow says, hey, I'm not into this uh, being shot business. It <laughs> uh, doesn't matter. That's what you were made for. You, you are an arrow. Um, and uh, so they don't have any choice in them, and it does sound militaristic, you know. And uh, I think, um, with those things in mind, there are reasons why a lot of folks today would find this passage objectionable. But I think uh, at the root of it, there is this notion that we don't want any any uh, given purposes; we want only chosen purposes, things that we choose. be I mean it's even gotten to the point where things that are hardwired into us you know biologically people object to I don't uh, think it's fair that I am made this way Uh, I would I would like to be this way and I'm going to spend a lot of your money as you know taxpayers dollars and and insurance uh, you know premiums uh, to make the change and you don't have any choice in it Uh, isn't that interesting you know either the person doesn't have any choice in it or we don't have any choice in it that seems to be the choice that we're faced with (laughs) but um, the given purposes uh, that we have uh, alluded to here are militaristic because there is a a battle that actually is going on right now we are in the midst of a battle this is not uh, simply a poetic way of speaking about life in the world there is actually is um, something uh, out there that's out to get us and uh, we have a given purpose and that given purpose is to serve the lord of hosts if you're familiar with the term lord of hosts right like when i was a young christian i was i was very i was very uh sort of confused by various terms that i heard in the church uh, like yoke, don't be unequally yoked. I thought, what does eggs have to do with any of this stuff, you know? And then when it comes to hosts, I thought, like, what is God, like the greatest host in the world, you know, like the greatest host of all, you know, throwing parties all the time, you know, the great, you know, buffets and stuff like that. No, Lord of hosts is the Lord who has an army, a host that, uh, you know, is at his command, available for him to, to uh, lead into battle. And here's another one that's interesting. The word, you know, the term "Hallelujah." We, we, uh, you know, you know, because of you know the Messiah handle and all that kind of, when, when the the when you hear "Hallelujah," you know your your mind immediately goes to these beautiful sort of soaring melodies, right? Hallelujah. It was a battle cry. It was like uh, something that you would you would shout at the top of your lungs as you're running down a hill with a sword in your hand. That's what hallelujah was, that's how it was employed. It was a battle cry. So, you know, we've lost touch with a number of things, but one of the things we've lost touch with is that we serve uh, a war god, a god who is a fighting god. Now, uh, when it comes to our given purposes, um, we're told in the scripture, and I had made an allusion to this this morning, that uh, in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, I believe, uh, we're informed that we uh have all fallen short of the glory of god you know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god which means there was a target and we've fallen short and literally the greek word harmatia means to miss the mark that's what it means so if you were at a competition you were an archer and you pulled back your bow and you released the string and you instead of hitting the target hit the guy uh, who was the judge he would say harmatia <laughs> 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 fall down you missed the mark you hit him Um, but that's the nature of the matter so we fall short of the glory of god and what we have in the westminster shorter catechism is a uh inversion that puts this into a positive framework with the first question and answer in the catechism remember what is the chief end of man what is the target what is the goal what are we shooting for the glory of god the chief end of man. So the question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, it's one of those marvelous things where the, t- the answer has two sides, the convex and the con- con- uh, concave sides of the of the statement, and you know it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So there we see the end and the means reconciled. In God, the end and the means are the same thing. It's not a choice so I like it's not like I gotta do my duty no that's your joy now you might not feel it right now <laughs> but it's sort of like learning to eat your broccoli you know there's some things are an acquired taste some things you learn to love uh, with time and uh, sometimes it's just uh, you've just got bad taste I know it's a hard thing to kind of accept <laughs> but some foods really are better than others, <laughs> and uh, some people have bad taste. So, so there's this inversion, the, the means and the ends are reconciled. We're creatures. We don't create ourselves. We don't create our purposes. All of the things that we do are der- derivative in character. So we are, are created with some end in mind. God is the creator. He has an end in mind for us. The end is His glory, but His glory is also His gift to us. The glory of God is something that we enjoy, something that we uh, find ourselves taken up into and participate in, and it suffuses us. Uh, And when it's properly understood, you know, the Lord tells us that in that day in the kingdom we will shine like stars, you know, as we stand in the presence of our Father. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. So it's not a glory that uh, is sort of... uh, waxes when our glory wanes, I think that's how some people think about it. It's like, you know, I gotta make myself uh, ab- totally abject, you know, and, and, and be nothing to glorify God. Well, what you're doing when you re- acknowledge the fact that you are nothing without God is just simply telling the truth. You're not actually making yourself smaller, you're actually acknowledging what you are. <laughs> I am completely dependent on God for everything every breath. And uh, when we glorify God, it's not at our expense. We receive what we give. And then we receive again, and we give again. And that's the nature of the the, the work that we're performing as we glorify God. And we uh, as we grow in grace, we uh, grow uh, in this way. So we're We're creatures, and we really can't make ends for ourselves because we really are not equipped to do so. Uh, To do that, you would have to be able to create something out of nothing like God does. Um, And we can't pull that off. So everything we do is, in some sense, derived from the things that we're given. So let's think about it in this way. Um, Imagine, if you will, attempt to anyway, a new primary color. You know what the primary colors are, right? Red, yellow, blue. All the other colors are just mixed up stuff from those primary colors. That's what they are. Maybe put in a little bit of black, a little bit of white to lighten it, but that's it. So you can't do it. Even if you could imagine something, you couldn't communicate it to us because we wouldn't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, you see what I'm getting at? Um, Now, God did it at least three times yellow. Boom, yellow. red red blue now I'll work with them green orange chartreuse olive <laughs> you can make a lot of stuff with just those three primary colors but everything we are is derivative so there's a just a, the simple fact that we receive and what we, we we've received we work with we give we're sub creators as tolkien used to say now getting to the quiverful um arrows If children are arrows that means the more you have the more you have to shoot and uh, when we think about it that way you know it's it's a really wonderful thing to have kids and to have uh, more than a few now whatever the Lord gives us we receive and it's not as though uh, it's entirely up to us remember Adam not Adam but uh, Abram and Sarah they just want a one never not able to have one until the Lord made it possible For them to have Isaac Um, so uh, as I noted it's not entirely up to you now Marla and I we have three Uh, we sometimes wish we had more Uh, but we kind of got out of the sort of the sort of the the miasma of of sort of 1980s evangelicalism a little late in the game and came to realize that children really are a marvelous blessing uh and but the time we had our first marla was already 30. so the window of opportunity had already narrowed quite a bit Uh, and i'm glad to say all of our children are on target you know they've been shot (laughs) and they're on target which is a beautiful thing to see Um, and we've got uh, four grandchildren now and a fifth on the way Um, and you know i Talked to you about our kids before, so I won't tell you what they're up to. But I did talk about that at the conference. But then the, I think a lot of the folks, just as a practical concern, you know, wonder how many can you afford? How many can you afford? Particularly when the U.S. Department of Agriculture informs you that you are going to incur the expense of three hundred and four thousand four hundred or three hundred and eighty dollars for every child that you that you have. Um, well. Uh, I, we had an interview with kevin DeYoung a little while ago on the podcast and we were in, getting into this because kevin uh i think they have nine and uh we asked him and he said one more than you think you can have <laughs> is that basically you're just open to whatever god brings your way one more than you think you can. and uh one of the, the things that we've learned and this is a remarkable thing and people don't know what entirely to make of it but uh self-made millionaires generally speaking are men with kids and not just one but several the millionaire next next door is a great book if you want to look into the research that they conducted Um, and what we've learned is that uh, uh, um, it does not it's not really doesn't really come down for men to their education Uh, there are lots of well-educated single guys who don't become millionaires in fact when it comes to the kind of the distribution of incomes uh, when it comes to you know single women single men married women married men uh, the single men are about the, at the same level of income as the as the single women uh, obviously the women who are married and have kids have some other things that ca- kind of occupy their attention <laughs> you know so what you end up with is this remarkable uh, fact and you can look it up in the wall street journal it's been reported many times people are outraged about it or puzzled by it they don't know what to do with it but guys with kids have more money now anybody who has kids who's a guy knows why you got to feed those little people <laughs> and not only do you have to feed those little people like when you're a guy you know old guys know this you know if it was just me i would sit in the basement watching football all day eating fritos you know be perfectly content (laughs) but when you love other people and you're like man I got to make sure that that kid can go to college I need to make some sacrifices I need to do some planning I need to put some money away I need to take some risks that all ends leads to you know doing things that you wouldn't have done otherwise you know really you wouldn't have done it so this is this is kind of the formula this by the way uh, it was what George Gilder was getting at in his book *Men and Marriage*. Uh, there's, it's been republished by Canon Press, but it was a, a, a kind of a, a, a controversial and sensational book in the in the 70s and 80s. I mean, he was on Phil Donahue. He was, you know, he was everywhere. Um, and if you're not familiar with George Gilder, he's an interesting guy to to learn about. But he was a Harvard grad, and basically, kind of the old Harvard uh, back when. The blue bloods thought of themselves as uh, aristocrats with responsibilities for the society rather than just people who were wrapped up in themselves. But um, anyway, so it, it, I, that's something to consider. But there's another uh, sort of wrinkle to this that we seldom consider, and that is because we think of children as ends and not means, and that is the children joining the work. So I've noticed this, you've probably noticed this, the older kids help with the younger kids all the time it's great it's the way it's always been and should be um, and I think uh, that's part of the formula that we, we've lost sight of because Immanuel Kant's statement has been uh, construed uh, to mean something I, that I don't think even he intended now returning to the theme of war as I know that we're in one uh, even though the Neville Chamberlain's of winsomeness tell us we're not people who know a little bit about World War II know who I'm talking about when I talk about him. Um, There is enmity between uh, the uh, children of the woman and, well, let me take you to this passage. Uh, This is from uh, Genesis chapter 3. And um, there we see uh, the, the account of the fall of Adam and Eve, fall of man. And then uh, there are the curses that follow when the Lord confronts uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Uh, Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So we're in a we're in a fight whether we want to be or not we can declare you know neutrality doesn't matter we're not Switzerland there is no neutral ground you either you remember the you know the Bob Dylan song right you got to serve somebody Some of you're like Bob what Bob? well you know people of certain age remember Bob Dylan and he had this song called you got to serve somebody Uh, and there's a line in it you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord and then the black choir comes in but you got to serve somebody and essentially what he's getting at is that Uh, you are either on one side of this or the other so there's a fight going on and the question is is uh, what side are you on Um, you remember uh, James tells us in his epistle that friendship with the world is what Enmity with God. The winsome I spend a lot of time trying to make friends with the world, and they've lost sight of this fundamental fact, uh, fundamental matter, that uh, that's a betrayal of our of our true uh, Lord. Now, the I thing I think we also need to remember is we're not the only ones with arrows. We're being shot at all the time. Remember Ephesians chapter six, right? when we're given the uh, the armor uh, a, an overview of its of its various um, implements uh, there you see um in verse 16 in all circumstances uh, all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one flaming darts a flaming dart would be an arrow that's Been dipped in some kind of flammable material and shot and you're the target I'm the target so it's not as though we're just minding our own business and picking fights you know it's we're actually under fire now when we think about this um, I think that oftentimes people particularly reform people when we think about uh, what's going on and especially the fact that our enemy is known as the accuser in Scripture uh, by the way, the, word, the name Satan uh, means adversary or accuser. And when we see uh, him in, at work, that's pretty much what we see. Like the opening chapters of Job, if you remember that, how the, the story starts, there we are in the heavenly court, right? The entourage, the courtiers are all there. And this, you know, God is upon this, His throne, you know, ex- executing judgment. And who saunters in but Satan and the Lord says where you been oh here and there walking around checking out things and then the Lord is the one who brings up Job now if I was Job I'd say why did you bring me into this (laughs) why did you mention me and the Lord says have you considered my servant Job (coughs) an upright man and then what does the accuser say he makes an accusation of course well, the only reason he likes you and worships you and is so great is because you've got this hedge around him. I can never get at this guy. If you just let me at him, man, he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord takes him up on the challenge. He said, no, not Job. I know, I know my man. Then the Lord sets a hedge and says, okay, you can have, you can have Adam, but only this far. And then that's how the story starts. And what you see, even in the, the episode in the garden, is there are accusations made, right? But who's the target of the accusations in the garden? God, the Lord. The only reason you're not supposed to eat from the tree is because he's a little scared of you. He's a, a little nervous. You know, he's afraid that maybe you would smarten up, you know, and challenge him, and you know, he just wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you down that's what's going on and what happens doubts rise in the minds you know maybe we're being duped and that's uh, what you call psyops psychological warfare accusations um, leveled at God leveled at us we see in uh, Revelation chapter tw- uh, 12 verse 10 that again it's just again he's the accuser he's referred to as the accuser accusing the saints day and night before the throne so we have somebody who's out to get us and uh, because that's the case um, we need to fight back and the first thing is we need a good defense and faith is our shield the accusations are made we have to believe God's promises um, we have to believe in God that he's trustworthy one of the things that the accuser you know is seeking to do is undermine our confidence our faith and confidence faith in fide, faith in god so and he is the prince of the power of the air we're told in ephesians right ephesians 2 2. have you ever thought about that that you know illusion prince of the power of the air it's so it evokes this sense that we're just surrounded by this atmosphere of worldliness and Uh, It has a blinding effect. It's as though there's some kind of miasma that we are surrounded by and we can't see clearly. Uh, And that's because it's been tinctured by these lies, these falsehoods. That's the devil's primary weapon, is lie, a lie. Um, Now, let's go back to this matter of uh, children as artillery. I want to think about this with you in the sense, okay, we're in a conflict. We didn't start it got to choose which side you're on we're being f- fired at how do we fight back we've got the shield of faith but is it a purely you know it's defensive struggle are we just simply extinguishing darts all day or, or do we ever get to shoot <laughs> well uh, what's implied I think in this uh, statement that I read from one this uh, 127th Psalm is that yeah one of those is surprisingly our kids and so there are arrows now the target uh, is also, I think, clear. It's the glory of God. What we want our children to 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 uh, serve is God's glory. So there's something about a child who glorifies God that is really d- damaging <laughs> to the adversary. It's one of the best things we can do in this conflict, is to Uh, see our children serve the glory of God so I want to reflect with you a little bit on some things that um, I shared at the conference and I I hesitate to call these things instructions Um, they're more like suggestions Um, and the reason is that uh, uh, you know they're based on a a range of things scripture of course but also some observations personal experience Um, so those things are to be kept in mind and and so w- the things i share uh, are things that at least as a father uh, working with my wife uh, you know we, we were endeavoring to to do when it came to raising our kids the first thing is you need to sharpen the arrow sharpen the arrow um, you know you don't want a blunt arrow <laughs> you want uh, a, a virtuous arrow and really that's what we're talking about here is virtue. Uh, the virtue of the knife, according to Aristotle, is in the cutting. In other words, when we think about virtue, we often think about moral virtue, and that's perfectly fine that's an, an appropriate thing to do. But the term is it, it, more inclusive essentially the the word virtue referred to anything that made whatever it is you're talking about effective. So the virtue of the knife is the sharpness of the knife so if a knife is dull; it lacks virtue. Now, the origin of the term "virtue" is also interesting to consider. "Vir" uh, in Latin means man, so we get "virile." And originally, when virtue was discussed, it was almost exclusively in connection to warriors. So, if you go and you look at, you know, the treatment of the term "virtue." In the oldest documents, you'd often find lists of things that you're looking for in a warrior. So, if, like, if you're a you know, recruiter for the U.S. Armed Services, you're looking for certain things. No flat feet. <laughs> Stuff like that. But you're also looking for, you know, is the person you know, capable of doing what we expect that person to be able to do? Uh, can that person fight? Stamina, et cetera. So, what you had were lists of things that characterized a good warrior. Let's think about some. Obviously, strength, right? You'd want strength to uh, characterize someone who's fighting for you. Courage, right? Can you think of some others? Loyalty, Loyalty? yep. Now, we're still kind of in the moral virtue categories. I'm going to take you into a whole new area, shrewdness. You want a tricky warrior <laughs> you'd end up with these lists that would include things that you would look at today and say that doesn't seem very virtuous odysseus what was his edge right well his edge in you know the the iliad is that he was the cunning one he was the crafty one he was the one with the plans he was the one who dreamed up the trojan horse sneaky guy that odysseus good warrior right so in other words, what I'm getting at is that there are things that are virtuous that don't necessarily fit into the moral virtue category. How did we get the moral virtue category? Well, it's not hard. Socrates figured, gave it to us. How it works is this. So what ended up happening is they ended up making lists for everything. You know They say, "Hey, we can apply this to potters. What do you want in a potter? Well you want? You know, Someone's got a good eye, you know, good sense of proportion, you know works well with his hands or her hands, you know, that's what makes a good, what makes a good housewife? They make a list for that. They have all these lists. And that eventually, uh, Socrates said, hey, what makes just make a good person? Just something, the stuff that we expect from everybody. Moral virtues, honesty, right? Uh, willingness to, to do things that need to be done. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot, range of things that ended up being identified and that's why today we've lost sight of that other stuff and now we focus in on just the moral virtues and they're great they're important and we expect them of everyone but we don't expect uh, the martial virtues of everyone we only expect the martial virtues of warriors now there are two other kinds of ca- or two other categories there were practical virtues and intellectual virtues so the the, the four generally speaking we moral, practical, intellectual, and martial. One of the things I've noticed over the years is moms tend to really focus in on a couple. Can you guess which ones those are when it comes to sharpening those little arrows? Moral virtues, of course. Share your pizza. (laughs) Right? right? You know, that's good. That's important. You need to be a sharing person. Don't be so selfish. (laughs) right? That's really great. What's the other one? Intellectual. Moms are often very into making sure their kids excel at school. That's great. Those are great things, but they're not the whole story. And if we're going to see our sons and daughters develop, you know, and be as sharp as they can be, we also need to think about the practical virtues, and we need to think about even the martial virtues. And I have kind of made a point of when i work with fathers is saying you don't need to to compete with your wife on the on moral virtues i'm pretty sure she's got them really down <laughs> you know mom is really on those things i bet what you need to do is support her you know reinforce those things maybe put them in a framework that helps you uh, the kids understand them uh and probably even the intellectual virtues mom is on, on top of it you remember the tiger mom phenomenon Tiger mom, from you know, all these people, who go, why are these kids from these particular countries doing so well in school? It's tiger mom. You know, my wife has taught piano for 35 years. Probably had well, hundreds of students, and many of those students come from those cultures where there's the tiger mom. And let me tell you something. Uh, if I had a mom like that, I'd do be really good at piano, too. <laughs> you know, just, just on you all the time, you know, and you know, helping you to succeed, you know, and reinforcing things. That's great. But the practical virtues, what would those include? Let me just kind of go through a list with you. And these are things that I think fathers can often be very helpful with. The first one may surprise you. Pain tolerance. Pain tolerance. We live in a world filled with thorns and thistles. Doing the right thing hurts. Get over it. Just get over it. You're going to hurt. It's marvelous how that's liberating. <laughs> you mean it's okay to, like, get hurt? Yes. You know the safetyism that we kind of have in our society today. There's an upside to that, but the downside to that is we have kids who are more and more averse to risk. Risk is risk avoidance is one of our biggest problems right now, particularly with young men. They just afraid of everything you know they can because they can redirect many of their creative energies into a virtual world where what you don't actually die you just start at the beginning again you know and and then you know you can pretend you are a, a fighter you know and not actually know how to fight another one is good judgment this is a theme that you've heard me talk a lot about exercising good judgment um that's something that's a that's a practical virtue and we need to help our kids develop practical virtues and good judgment is one of the things that they need to develop and that includes risk assessment so just because pain tolerance is a virtue doesn't mean you just like throw yourself into a briar (laughs) i'm trying to build my pain tolerance that's a pretty dumb thing to do what i'm what i'm getting at is that you know when you do the right thing there's going to be resistance and you need to be ready for that And when it comes to judgment, you need to accept the fact that there is no such thing as risk-free life. The risk-free life is how people make money on you. Let me take the risks for you. Afraid to lose money in the stock market? Hey, I'll manage your money. And every year, whether you make money or lose money, I get money. <laughs> you probably notice this. You know, I'm not saying that you need to all be, be a, a stock pickers or anything. It's just that's the arrangement. That's the way it works. That's the way it works in the world. Uh, so, you know, there are some risks that you just have to take yourself. And I do think that some some of our young men uh, are, you know, afraid not of physical uh, harm or afraid of financial loss. Sometimes they're just afraid of rejection. And it's one of the reasons why we have a lot of guys who aren't taking initiative when we we ought to see that. Another thing is mastery. Now, you can't master everything, but you can master some things. And I look at it this way. When it comes to being a man in full, which was the ideal in the ancient world, a man in full, meant that you have a range of responsibilities and a range of things that you uh work at there are some things that are like you know those are things that uh are whatever things those are things that i leave to whomever to do you know but then there are things that you can have um a tolerable measure of competence that permits you to do that thing but that's not your living right like i can wire a room don't ask me to in- install a breaker box though. You know, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> but I can wire a room, I can, you know, I can work on my car, I can do a number of things, but there are things that are above my pay grade I pay other people to do. And then there are a few things where I strive to be the master of that thing. So communication. I strive to be a good communicator, master the art of communicating in writing and speaking and so forth, I think about it a lot because it's one of the arts that I have been given to practice. Uh, and so there are a range of things that you can be, you know, you can master and you should help your, your children uh, identify those things. What should that child master? So with our, our boys, and I know I'm getting on in here, so I'll try to wrap it up quick. But with our boys, uh, one of the things, you know, I was always uh concerned with is uh what's this kid good at you know try to identify their talents their tendencies their dispositions their inclinations and then work with those work with the grain and i'll talk more about that in a minute i think too another sort of practical thing that uh practical matter that you can work with your boys on on is manliness now one of the things that i think sometimes girls don't understand is that um, a man standing with other men is really important, really important, and it affects women in ways they don't understand, they don't appreciate. Um, when I was you know, working with my daughter on this matter of you know, who she should marry, one of the things I said is you want not only a man that you can respect, but other men respect, because it's going to affect your, your life <laughs> if other men don't. So you need, as a father, as you're working with your sons particularly, help them understand what are the things that other men look at as being significant and work with them on those things. It's just real obvious stuff, you know, look you in the eye, you know, firm handshake, forthright, you know, sort of direct speech, you know, those sorts of things. And every once in a while, you know, I, with my boys, you know, we talk about that kind of stuff. You know, how did you address so-and-so? What did you say? How did you stand in that kind of thing? Um, So um, another thing is magnanimity. What I mean by that is sort of being big enough to overlook small slights. You need to be the sort of person again who uh, is not petty vindictive, but you can take a punch so to speak. Um, A protectiveness, I think that's an important thing uh, for both boys and girls uh, to learn to be uh, a a person who protects the, the the people that can't protect themselves. Uh, And make certain that you have that uh, that's a practical virtue wisdom just wisdom generally speaking Wisdom and intelligence are not the same thing. I've known a lot of intelligent people who are fools I've known people who are not terribly intelligent who are very wise Uh, So wisdom is a is a practical uh, capacity to apply uh, a Really just a sense of uh, you know good uh, and right uh, standards and behavior in a particular situation the, the best example and maybe from popular f- fiction is Forrest Gump you know he just he was wise stupid is as stupid does it's the behavior that counts you can be in Mensa and behave like a fool Mensa is the club for geniuses in case you were unaware <laughs> I've known some, and they were some of the ones I've known have been pretty dumb. I was <laughs> like, "Really? You're in Mensa? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's a club that I don't feel like I need to join." Now the next thing, uh, so sharpening them, honing your children, and I think particularly in the practical virtues as a father. So I'm a, you know, at this conference, I was largely addressing fathers, but this is something that moms also, of course, need to be aware of. But as I noted, I really do think moms to have a tendency to focus on those other things, and that's really important. Those things are really great. Um, next thing you need to do is not only sharpen uh, your arrows, but you need to know your weapons. You need to know your weapons. So what is this child made for? That's one of the things I noted earlier. What is this child made for? Um, and in order to do that, you need to have at least a little bit of knowledge about a wide range of things so that you can identify, oh, I think he or she is really talented in this particular place or way. So this is kind of interesting right now for us. Uh, we're watching our children with their children, and we're kind of it's amusing to see how things play out. So like our oldest granddaughter is named Elowin. Uh For Eowyn in, you know, Lord of the Rings, this sort of feisty fighting girl, right? And my daughter-in-law, Whitney, she's like really into to, to, to Eowyn. And Elowen wants to be a ballerina. <laughs> she wants her twirly dress, you know. And you can kind of see Whitney's, oh, no. She's, <laughs> Pink, she's into pink you know <laughs> it's like twirling around watch me dance I'm like yeah that's great <laughs> maybe you're supposed to be a ballerina <laughs> I don't know she's still a little kid you know this is, you know these things come and go uh, but you know you, you look for that you study your children you know that's the other thing so you need to have a sort of like a broad awareness of all the possibilities because everybody has a calling and maybe your child is a call to be in something that you have no sort of personal experience with it happens uh, the other thing is you need to study your child in depth observe the behavior observe the tendencies you know sir sort of, uh, make you know the child your object of study uh, now hopefully you'll share some interest with your children that's always great so in the, in, our, in our case uh, each of our children uh, have something that I share in common with them and it gives me some way to relate to them and that's great but uh, I do I do think that sometimes you know, we hope that they'll follow in our footsteps and do the exact same thing we do and that kind of thing. You ever see uh, River Runs Through It, that film uh, by Robert Redford, where the, there's this Presbyterian pastor and he's got two sons and he keeps making hints about the ministry. <laughs> and they're like, well, I don't know. Yeah. They're not into that, you know. And they, they, uh, but they do share another interest, and that's literature. They're, they're all great writers, and they have that in common. That would be, and they're great fishermen. They had that in common so you know it's nice to, to have certain things in common even if your children have callings that are difficult for you to understand or relate to but i think finally and this is where i'll finish prayer is super significant and important uh, when the when the arrow is launched there's not much you can do about it where it's going right uh, at that point you know it's the atmosphere <laughs> And it's the trajectory, and it's the power of the shot, and all of those things go into play are in play with the final uh, destination of that of that arrow. And it's important to remember that ultimately, as fathers and mothers, we're not in charge. We're middlemen. We're the middlemen of the cosmos, the middlewomen of the cosmos, however you want to put it. Uh, and we report to upper management. And one of the things we need to keep in mind is. Uh, we should be uh, seeking the favor of upper management for our kids all the time. Interceding for them, praying for them. Remember Job? Job knew his kids. That's why he made sacrifices after every party. He's <laughs> like, I don't know what those kids are up to. If you remember the story of Job, he made, you know, he interceded for his kids on a, you know, a, on a daily basis when they would get together for their weekly party after they were done, you know, he, apparently he was never invited, I wonder why. But anyway, he wasn't invited, but he would make sacrifice for them because he'd say, perhaps they've sinned and cursed God in their hearts. You know, I need to intercede for them. I need to pray for them. Prayer is super important. So in our household, my kids, uh, you know, over the years i prayed for them uh, and they actually uh, want me to pray for them. Um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing to see that they uh, solicit my prayers. Um, the Lord's been gracious to, to us and answered many prayers. Now, obviously, there is a, you know, we should prioritize things in our prayers. You know, the first thing, of course, is salvation and growth and grace. That's the, the, the primary thing. Always pursue that first. Think about that first in your prayers. But then I think vocation comes shortly. It follows that shortly. It's very brief. You know, sort of, there's a very small space between salvation and vocation. You know, what is this child called to do? and pray for that uh, then i think particularly fathers should be engaged in helping children establish households of their own this is something that throughout the history of the world in various cultures was primarily the father's job helping children establish their own households so uh, you know that means that it doesn't mean that you are like necessarily have to like arrange a marriage or something but it just means that you're engaged you're involved you're concerned you're prayerful you're you know, I, I think I mentioned before that when my, my daughter had her the first suitor that came uh, to our home from college with my daughter, I, like two seconds I knew, no, no, not this guy, not this guy. And I informed her shortly after that, <laughs> not that guy. <laughs> and one of the reasons is the reason I mentioned earlier, I can't respect that guy and no one other, not, not many other guys will. And that's going to make a big difference in your life. And I don't think you understand it, but that's okay. You don't have to understand it. Trust me. And she did. And then after that, I was really praying, (laughs) really praying that the Lord would bring the right guy along, and the right guy came along. And, uh, you know, there's a vetting process and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, that's part of a father's job, trying to make sure that his daughters, his sons are set up. So for years, I, I coached my sons on girls. You know, like when they were like 14, that's when it started. You know, I, it wouldn't be like the big sit down. OK, we're going to talk about girls. It wasn't like that. we were just driving different places. We talk about, you know, this is what girls are like. This is what you can expect. This, you know, this is what it's going to be like when you get rejected. It, that it happens to, it happened to Steve McQueen, for goodness sake. If, you, know, <laughs> you know, it happens to every guy. So get over it. You know, it's going to happen. Not every girl is going to like you. But uh, you still need to be able to, you know, accept rejection, get up next time and do it again, you know. Um, and I would tell them stories about times I was rejected, just different things, you know. We'd, and we, so we explore these themes and nice to, nice to see that both the boys got the girl that they were going for, you know, in each case. So that was great. But establishing households of their own and then, uh, you know, uh, praying for grandchildren. That's compound interest right there. I had a friend, uh, actually he was a member of church we served in Cambridge, his name is Perky Surkar. And um, Perky was from Pakistan, Christian from Pakistan. And and he said, uh, the interest is more precious than the principal. That's what he's getting at. Anyway, those are some thoughts. And uh, I've gone longer than I was supposed to. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we think about our children and how they can glorify you. We pray, Lord, you'll help us uh, in this work. Christ's name, amen.